Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. We are in the off-season, I'm quite uh, happy to tell you. Uh, we are going to do a series of shows uh, reviewing the exceptional 2020 season. And uh, I'm very, very pleased to tell you that, first of all, my name is Neil Morrison and I'm joined today by a colleague, respected journalist, uh, magazine owner, editor, a man of many, many trades, uh, Mr. Adam Wheeler. Hello, sir. What a fine introduction. Thank you, Neil. And it's even more splendid to be recording this on the uh, on the rooftop of your apartment building in Barcelona, where the sunshine is I, I'm struggling to find a cloud in the sky. Oh, there's one over there. Um, but no, a beautiful afternoon. And, uh, you know, in, in the hub of, of Catalonia, so many, the, the home of so many MotoGP races and, and world champions. Absolutely. Yes, yes. You are currently where I spent a good deal of the lockdown. This is basically what kept me sane. This, uh, this little environment up here with the views and uh, the fresh air, the sunshine. And then you went into a wave of PCR tests and traveling, never coming home. There must have been times when you, you know, craved to be back on this rooftop in the sunshine. There were times, but then there were also times on this rooftop where I craved to be working and back in the paddock and in and about it. So, yeah, you're always looking at the grass on the other side. There's people that probably have no interest in this whatsoever, but, you know, our experiences of MotoGP this year have been, as two writers, two journalists, have been very different. I mean, you've been at the circuit in a bubble, um, essentially having to travel from race to race. What was it 14 races in 18 weeks? Um, whereas my experience, apart from going to the, the local race here in Circuit de Catalunya, was very much through a screen. And, you know, I think that each, each role has its own um, uh, laborious part, I could say. It's very repetitive. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, it was a great season in so many respects. Um, racing was spectacular. Um, lots of interesting storylines to keep abreast of. Um, the experience covering it was uh, different, very, very different. And I can imagine uh, I found it quite uh, tiring, you know, uh, doing everything via Zoom and via screens, not having that human interaction. I, I can't imagine what it must have been like away from the track. Well, that was one of the most bizarre things about this of, of a bizarre year is, you know, it, kind of normally a season, okay, that was very strange anyway but there was so many kind of stories and events little things happening from you know sites that you couldn't believe in austria to fantastic victories last corner wins um it's you know, the, being in the paddock i think would have been a rich uh, source of, of of stories and and kind of content generated so having that distance was was pretty pretty tough to manage but you know uh, the access we had through television and through screens and technology, thank goodness, kind of saved the day. Yeah, exactly. I mean, God help us if we were doing this 20 years ago. Yeah. It probably would have just been impossible. But technology at least allowed the majority of people to keep up to date, let's say, 80% of what they can normally do. Um, but uh, but yes, we digress ever so slightly at the start of this show. We're basically, uh, for the off-season this year, we're going to do a series of review shows of 2020 in MotoGP. We're going to start that off by looking at several of the manufacturers. And by the end of 2020, uh, we hope to have David Emmett and Steve English, our trusty and uh, friendly and lovely colleagues, back with us for an end-of-the-season show. But um, basically today, Adam, we're going to talk about, I guess, two of MotoGP's big winners in manufacturer's terms in 2020. Suzuki, of course, won the first Riders' Championship. 
for 20 years. And uh, Ducati, who won their first Constructors' Championship in MotoGP uh, since 2007, only their second in MotoGP history. So both of those factories obviously suffered really contrasting emotions, even though they were both slightly victorious in the end. So um, I guess, uh, yeah, what are your do thoughts you, on... I mean, do you think in some ways the championship was defined by the manufacturers this year? I mean, you know, you didn't have a superlative rider performance from Mark Marquez. Uh, there was no particular duel like we saw five years ago. Um, you know, or, or Jorge Lorenzo, you know, coming through to the top like he did in his prime. I mean, it very much, very much was a case of which manufacturer could get the Michelin sorted and adjust to the, the condensed race format of performing week in, week out, back to back at the same circuits. Yeah, exactly. It was about finding, first of all, um, a setting that worked with the, uh, the new Michelin tire for this year and also consistency. Um, because we had Ducati, for example, who could be ludicrously fast in some places with very certain riders, and then absolutely nowhere with those same riders two weeks later. I mean, we can get onto it a bit later, but one of the, the mysteries for me was Peko Bagnaya. I mean, I know he was dealing with an injury, but you know, uh, he looked so formidable in the Jerez rounds. But then we didn't really see much else of that speed later in the season. But you could argue that Ducati have that constructors' plate probably somewhere in a wall, in you know, in Borgo Panagali somewhere. Um, largely due to the fact that their factory team and their satellite team were the strongest overall, you know, in terms of their their output on the grid. You know, they, those were the strongest four bikes across across the board. Yeah, yeah, you could say that. And Suzuki, obviously, slightly disadvantaged in the fact that they just had their two riders in the factory team. Um, but let's start with Suzuki because I think we could say final round the Portimao side. It was a pretty glorious year. Had it not been for a rubbish last round. They could have had the Triple Crown. In the end, they just won the Riders' Championship at Joan Mir and the Team's Championship, which I don't know how much uh, pride they placed on that. But um, you have to say that the Suzuki was 2020's best bike, most balanced bike. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of making that tyre package work, like we said earlier on, it was rare to hear the riders complaining, um, you know, through, again, through those mountains of Zoom calls. For other manufacturers and other riders, there were constant, you know, fluctuations between uh, contentedness and frustration, um, especially even in the same in the course of seven days at the same track, depending on temperatures or, or just slight change in the climate conditions. So to, to listen to the Suzuki boys talking through the year, there was it was pretty constant the, the way they had things working there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they had their very obvious strong points. They had their one obvious weakness, which was trying to set lap times with a new tire. They could never quite extract the absolute maximum out of a new tire, and that impacted both Rins's and Mir's qualifying throughout the year, which was an obvious weakness. Um, but it seemed that they put some of the weaknesses from last year right this year. I mean, talking uh, further on in another show about Yamaha, I mean, that is a, that is a crazy story, but it seems that Suzuki became the user-friendly bike that kind of replaced the, the Yamaha in terms of being the motorcycle that with the 2020 Michelin package and the way the circuits came around and the circuits that were used, that was, was the motorcycle to have. Yeah, absolutely. And even some of the weaknesses that they would talk about last year, like top speed, we saw in uh, Austria, uh, how good the bike was coming out of the corner. They definitely found some extra acceleration. Top speed wasn't that big an issue for them as it had been in the past. Compare that to maybe, you know, Franco Morbidelli's Yamaha. You never really heard Mir or, or Rins uh, complaining about that. I think also another factor was the way they were able to get up to optimum 
not always, of course, but the, the, the tire working temperature, because we saw so clearly in a number of races how both Mir and Rins would start very strongly. You know, immediately they wouldn't be maybe on the first two rows of the grid, but they would be straight up into that front running group. I mean, that was a factor as well. I mean, that, that's not just down to rider confidence. That's a package that's able to work directly from the first lap. And Suzuki, you know, perhaps not the most innovative um, manufacturer on the grid, um, you know, in terms of using ride height devices, whole shot devices. I mean, they're, they're not sort of cutting the path there like Ducati are. Yeah, exactly, for sure. Um, the Suzuki did seem to be... Um, very good package pretty much everywhere we went. I think maybe the exception was Le Mans. Um, and Mir kind of got out of jail at Le Mans because it rained just before the race and he didn't have the best race, but neither did Quadraro. Um, I'm trying to think of other places where the bike struggled and I'm, I'm coming up short. I mean, it was a pretty sorted package everywhere we went. In low temperatures. I mean, again, you, you were at the, the circuits themselves. It was... It seemed Le Mans was maybe the trickiest one to handle in terms of the, the climate of that particular race. And again, in terms of uh, uh, Valencia, of course, was chilly, but then it normally is that time of year, even though the first Grand Prix we had this season was a week earlier than it typically would be. But yeah, it, it just like we said, most user-friendly bike. But then if we come on to the riders themselves... Um, you know, it's an interesting dynamic there because I remember that with the few interviews I was able to do face to face this year, speaking with David Brivio, uh, the team manager in, in Catalonia, I was asking him about how he deals with that dynamic between two riders, pretty much equally pegged. Um, but then, you know, Rins kind of, you know, he didn't have the, the number one billing so much anymore because Mia's consistency was already kicking in by that point. And let's not forget that in the in the preseason tests in Sepang, also Qatar, um, you know, I think even the one day in Jerez prior to the first race, uh, you know, Rins was top three, top four amongst the fastest riders until his crash and injury. He was looking very much like the man that would get that title for Suzuki. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure Alex Rins is currently and has been thinking pretty much all season, had it not been for that qualifying spill at the first MotoGP race of the year, uh, that would have been his title for sure. Um, because even when he was riding quite, you know, considerably injured in August, like less than a month after that fall, um, he was still fighting for race wins in, in Austria. What was your estimation of, of Mir though, Neil? Because, I mean, you've written enough about him um, this year after what he's achieved. I mean, for me, it seems he's maybe a little, men he's a little mentally stronger than, than Alex. I think there's more champion material there and let's consider the fact that he's been i think only in five years in grand prix racing and already has two championships now i think that's a fantastic record that's a marquez-esque type of uh, rate of achievement yeah it is it, it absolutely is and you mentioned the championships which is obviously a massive thing but um with our colleague cormac uh cormac ryan meaning um we were obviously spending a lot of time together because we were just locked up in the same accommodation for basically two weeks three weeks <laughs> and then we were having a conversation one day about about mir's progress and even if you look at his um his rookie year in moto three i think he finished sixth overall in the championship as a rookie and then you look at his one year in moto two and he was either fifth or sixth in the championship that year he didn't win any races but he had a couple of podiums and you're like okay so He's been first twice in two of those years, but in the other three, he's been, well, okay, last year was a bit of an exception model GP, but in two of the other three, he was inside the top six overall. So yes, you're absolutely right. Consistency has been, um, has been a trait of his, and you talked a little bit about that confidence, that self-conviction. You speak to 
people that have worked with him in the past and they say that's one thing that just stands out pretty much straight away. Um, even at the start of this year, no one had Mir pegged for the champion, never mind finishing in the top five in the championship. But his crew chief, uh, Frankie Corchetti, uh, told me after the season was finished that, um, yeah, we had some conversations about the championship. Like people thought we were a bit silly, but, you know, we were, we, it wasn't as if we were completely writing ourselves off. So Rins must have been looking across the garage thinking, you, you know, expletive. <laughs> I mean, he, he kind of really just sideswiped him a little bit. I mean, he must have, he's worked with Juan. He must have known his potential. Um, I mean, Alex has had his, ho his own highlights. I mean, the, the, the race, the Circuit of the Americas win in Texas was, was fantastic. And also the Silverstone last corner pass on Marquez. Um, but for me, the telling signs are always there from when he led the Moto2 World Championship and just completely crumbled in the second half of the season. I remember thinking, is this a guy, seems nice enough, a little dour, boring, but then just, <laughs> can he actually put together, you know, a championship campaign? It's, uh, I, I had my doubts and, and I, I would like to see how he responds to riding next to the champion in was in effect his team yeah. next year. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think there were lots of reports about how those two didn't really get along coming into this year. But judging by some of the things I saw in press conferences and podiums and celebratory uh, photos and videos and whatnot, it does look like they... An amiable relationship. Yeah, yeah, they might have actually, you know, uh, learned to accept each other and, and get on. Um, but to talk about Suzuki... Generally, I mean, we know that it's uh, it's not the most well-resourced uh, team in the paddock. It's not the best-funded team in the paddock. Um, and as you said, it's not the most innovative team in the paddock. But how, how have they done this? How have they um, not just won the championship, but basically got two riders fighting for the podium most weekends? Is it a process, you know, begun over a course of six to seven years, you know? Um, I remember getting a call... Um, I was doing, I've worked in MXGP for a number of years now, uh, 20 years, and I had a call from the agency that did the, uh, the press work for the factory Suzuki team in motocross saying the MotoGP team are racing this weekend in Valencia. You know, it's their first race back. Um, you know, would you be able to do some press releases for them? And that meant going there and talking to Brivio, uh, talking to Randy Lapunia, who was riding the, the bike that weekend, um, who wasn't very happy, I seem to remember, coming into the garage and kicked a few oil cans and whatever else because, you know, the, the bike... <laughs> This wasn't competitive enough, wasn't reliable enough. I think he may not even finish that Grand Prix, if memory serves me correctly. At Valencia? Yeah. Yeah, they the had like card. three engine blow-ups or something that weekend, yeah. I seem to remember. It yeah. was pretty gruesome. Yeah. I mean, uh, KTM as well. Uh, I think three years, maybe two years later, uh, 2016, when Mika Calio, they made their debut at this, the same uh, venue. Um, and they also didn't finish their first Grand Prix. But um, it, from a long-winded answer to your question, I think it has just been a steady process. Uh, let's not ignore the work of Sylvain Gantoli as well with the test team. Um, it seems now to be a test rider is a fantastic career option for a, for, you know, a MotoGP rider. Um, and I think Sylvain's work, his knowledge he brought in from Superbike as well, and you know, just top-flight racing, has to, he has to have a, a good slice of the credit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and as you say, it's it's that sort of incremental gains that they've been making year on year. I think 2017, when they got the engine uh, internals uh, wrong, um, that aside, it has been a fairly consistent rise, basically, if you were to chart their progress over what since 2015 when they came into the class. They've just built on that, and it's become a more complete package since then. I also think you look at the rider lineup, it's the strongest rider lineup in, in MotoGP in terms of two guys that are yeah. very equally matched. And 
I mean, even with even with Monster Yamaha, um, you know, Rossi, you can't really say that he's the most consistent rider anymore. Maverick blows hot and cold. Maybe Morbidelli and Quattararo is is on a par with that. But um, I still think that the you know that is the best rider lineup that there was on the grid this year. But again, look at the history. I mean, Suzuki kind of went into a, a process of using Alessio Spargaro and his kind of experience. Uh, especially with CRT machinery, um, just his awareness for, for motorcycling behavior. Um, they took him and had Maverick alongside for one year. So they always had that old, slightly older rider and the younger guy. Um, the same approach when they signed Rins. And now, like you say, the, the, the lineup is, is not junior anymore. There's nothing kind of uh, emerging about that, that, those, those two together. But, uh, you know, I, one thing, Neil, about Suzuki is I struggle to understand really their strategy i mean because if you look at their racing programs internationally there's no kind of real presence no factory presence in superbike um you know there's zero presence in in top flight motocross uh their recent big team in north america with ama supercross and motocross is gone so really apart from MotoGP, um there's there's not really much else there i'm just struggling to understand how that feeds into production bike development which of course is the one of the big reasons that manufacturers spend millions going racing in MotoGP. And I wonder how Suzuki will use this new level of achievement and uh, progress. Um, yeah, it's strange. It just seems where they're cutting, you know, many other areas, then they're excelling in others. So it's, it has to be only a matter of time. I mean, at what point do you think next year we're going to have an announcement about two more bikes, Suzuki's, uh, you know, JSXR's being on the grid in 2022. I think it's going to come pretty early. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely um, a, a, a question of, of when, not if, um, that uh, that satellite Suzuki team that's been on the cars for years now. Um, but that should be interesting. Uh, just to wrap up our, our Suzuki segment, uh, is Mir deserving champion? One race win, the lowest win haul in MotoGP history. The previous was two, which I think was... Uh, was achieved on three occasions and on two of those that was when we only had six or seven races a year uh the lowest win haul in history i think you've got a the whole um mark marquez wasn't there so the champion is perhaps undeserved ridiculous completely ridiculous um you know joan was there and he did he he again having worked in msgp and watched uh, an athlete like tony cairoli build championship campaigns nine of them um, you know, since 2005, he he did what he had to do at every single race in the, the conditions that demanded to put the points and, and deliver the championship. That was, you know, his achievement. But I, I, I do worry that it's a, the equivalent of maybe scoring a goal in the first 15 minutes of a cup final. Um, I do want to see how he'll kick on from there. And I do wonder if unless Suzuki can make some sort of technical progress, uh, improve their qualification potential, um, whether he might actually get frustrated um, in the next year or two. Um, if Honda can you know, make their bike just a little bit more user-friendly for Mark uh, and Alex indeed, then you're going to see you know, an increased strength from them and Paulo Spargaro. Uh, and there's no way that Yamaha can have a year like they did this year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's going to be really fascinating. I, I still think that we haven't really seen anywhere near the best of Mir yet. I no, still think he's right. There's so much more still to come. And, um, and I love his character. I really do. I think, you know, he's a racer. You know, I think Rins may be more as a rider, but I think, you know, there's something about Joanne that he likes mixing it up. I remember his his kind of um, 
his anger, if you like, you know, post Grand Prix of Styria, I think, uh, you know, when he was deprived of a, was it a podium finish? The, the Spargaro incident, yeah, the win. You know, he was, i never seen him quite so upset. Yeah. And actually going back, I mean, my first encounter with Jam, it was, there was a guy called Jeremy DeBees who was a, an agent. Uh, he actually helped Dylan Ferrandis in motocross get over to, to the USA. And I was sitting next to him in the press conference in Valencia, and I think it was 2004. 15 maybe maybe one of Joamia's first podiums in Moto3 16. Uh, 16 and he was sitting next to me and and Joan was kind of fumbling his way through the press conference in a sort of his broken English and uh Jeremy said you know watch this kid you know he's he's got it all he's got everything and I, I was a bit dismissive of the time because I thought yeah just another fast Spanish kid you know learning <laughs> the ropes in Moto3 He'll crash his brains out next year, you know, win some races, hover around a bit, you know, and ah, then the sink, into the, sink into the motor to abyss uh, before making some progress. So, yeah, the speed which, you know, he went on to dominate stuff in 2016. I mean, Jeremy was on the money. He was working then for the Leopard racing team. So, oh, yeah. Um, right. You know, he was working with him and knew, knew him well. So it was, uh, was a good analysis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly a, an impressive young man. Um, and... I think one of his techniques, I think it was Frankie Corchetti, again, his crew chief said, um, we're looking at a guy that's at 85% of his potential just yet. So there's still certainly a, a lot more to come. And it'll be interesting to see how he starts the season when he's not kind of in defensive mode, where he's not just riding to pick up points and this and that. But I still think it's a, a spectacular achievement when you look at the inconsistencies of the others. To be that consistent itself was a massive achievement. How's he going to handle that? I mean, will he run a number one on his bike? And how will he handle that? Because that comes with, you know, as much as you like to fob it off and say, yeah, it's just another racing year. There are expectations and pressure around that. Yeah, yeah. But he, he definitely strikes strikes you, I'm sure. Uh, strikes me as well as a, a very grounded, level-headed guy and um, very, very intelligent. So I don't f foresee him falling into some kind of complacency. Yeah, he has more like a bring-it-on attitude rather than wanting to shy away from anything. And that's, uh, you know, a lot of credit for that. Absolutely. Um, so Suzuki, definitely one of this year's uh, success stories and, and feel-good stories in some respects. Uh, everyone likes Suzuki. Good team, good people work there. Nice-looking bike. Great-looking bike as well. Yeah, good riders too. Um, and we're going to move on to uh, Ducati. I guess another success story in some respects, but it's strange, Adam, because I'm sitting here right now and I, I don't look at 2020 and think it was a successful year for Ducati. But if you say Ducati to me, I think of two things. One, I, I think despite some bad luck, Jack Miller's best season so far in terms of looking like the rider we've all thought he could be. But then also the mess of Andrea De Vizioso was was you know kind of overclouds any achievement I think um, and the Petrucci. way that was handled uh, of Petrucci of course but I think the writing was obviously on the wall you know maybe from last year and the way over the the Miller Lorenzo mess you could see how Ducati operate um, so I think Danilo's time was always under a big clock then but to, the way the De Vizioso thing was handled it, you know I think it it just leaves a to use a cliche, a sour taste in the mouth, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's a, another puzzling case where a rider leaves Ducati just totally disaffected and sick of the tension, the pressure, the stress. Uh, we've mentioned it in the show many times, but the, the Undaunted documentary didn't necessarily paint that team in the best light. It wasn't a happy camp. It certainly it doesn't seem like, a, or it didn't seem like a happy atmosphere in there. And I bumped into uh, Dobby's manager, Simone Battistella, back in Valencia. And uh, he was saying just that 
you know, the two years, like you couldn't, be, you can't believe the pressure and the stress he's felt in the last two years. I mean, it, it basically led him to just say, I, I don't want to even race anymore. Well, for one year, I need to just go and clear my head. Um, so that I don't think paints it in such a great light. You mentioned earlier about Pekka Banyaya, sensational at two tracks, but anonymous more or less everywhere else. Um, I mean, how do we explain the radical inconsistencies with some of the riders and then someone like Davizioso just, I mean, I don't think we ever saw anywhere near the best of Davizioso in 2020. No, and and, and how can a rider like Danilo Petrucci be so good? Okay, it was wet, the conditions were very tricky in Le Mans, but then go back to, you know, struggling to make top 15. It's, I mean, there were cleverer minds than us trying to sort of sort out those problems, Neil, but um, it I mean, they must have spent the better part of six months trying to get some form of consistency in the motorcycle. And again, I think it's credit to Miller that him and his crew chief and his technicians managed to get something where he was consistently quick. Or maybe that's just me remembering the last set of races, both in Valencia and Portimao. But, you know, I mean, Jack had some pretty bad luck through the year. You know, the Mizano uh, tear-off um, and another the engine race. Failure yeah, the engine, yeah. Yeah, he was taken out of Aragon uh, by Binder, even though I don't think he would have scored a, a great result there but it was still yeah. another race where he retired through no fault of his own but that was the, the the folly of the the back-to-back races because you know Giganti knew coming to motorland they, they were essentially on a hide into nothing and it was you know seven days of you know difficult work wasn't it for the factory there yeah yeah absolutely i think a lot of it um comes down to the, the i mean i think Ducati were one of the the factories that seemed to really struggle to understand the the new rear tire this year more than anyone uh, maybe honda were on a similar level um but it seemed that we all know that the bike doesn't turn so well compared to some of the rivals but it does seem that davizioso in particular had a, a sort of devised the technique of how to get the best out of the older generation tires and almost basically maneuver them via sliding in such a way where he could negate some of those turning issues but with these new tires it just wasn't possible at all um you just could not do that and it, it was baffling to see such expertise and such technical ability uh, but then not find a solution for that but then davizioso i think perhaps speculation of course but one of the reasons why ducati was so frustrated with him was his inability to maybe adapt either took him much longer than they expected or there was just a stubbornness there because he essentially had to change the way he entered into the corners and you know everyone says they're one of the heaviest breakers in MotoGP that's like one of the universal tags but if you speak to the technicians at Brembo the Davizioso is very hard on, on the equipment so you know he, he pretty much had to alter his system and knowledge of entering corners in a way I mean <laughs> as a guy who doesn't race bikes I imagine to do that to you know the minuscules of a second it takes to make a lap time is difficult enough so for a guy who's been entrenched in MotoGP for the you know the better part of two decades in various forms it's uh you know it must have been a real head twister yeah exactly 34 years of age I mean it's not an ideal time to drastically adapt uh, your riding style well that's maybe that's uh, why he didn't want another year on the Desmosedici as well it's like why would you know maybe their promises of maybe Ducati need to change their hardcore philosophy of the fastest engine on the grid and, and sacrifice it more for some compromising in an area with their chassis but maybe he didn't want to stick around for another year of 
then potentially getting it wrong, especially with the, the technical regulations so tight for 21 anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it was interesting to hear, I think, uh, Paolo Chiabatti told um, some of our colleagues in the written press who attended the final race of the year at Portimao, uh, Paolo Chiabatti told them that they were pushing the MSMA to bring a basically a different, well, pushing Michelin, sorry, to bring a different rear tire, sorry, different front tire for the grid for 2021, basically one that matches the rear tire, which they feel would give the bike a bit of a, a better balance. Um, but, uh, I mean, it, it remains to be seen whether that will that'll come into effect. Uh, yeah, I don't fancy wanna, it won't. You want to hand your rival uh, potentially like a reprieve almost, would you? Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, puzzling one was Ducati. So much, uh, so much experience there, yet the best performances we saw were from the young guns uh, or the riders that had the less amount of experience on those bikes. So Zarco, who is basically New George Caddy, Banyai only in his second year, and Miller, who is what, third year, I think? Um, so, yeah, it, and, and basically that's their, that's the strategy from now, youth. Maybe again, that, that proves the point about Davizioso. You know, if, if you couldn't adapt that much to be competitive enough to, to win, or at least challenge the, the, the regularity of the Suzuki's and the circuits where uh, the Suzuki's shone and, and the KTM's had their bright moments as well, then you were just struggling all the time. You were just reduced to lower top 10 also rounds. And I think there's a part, if we talk about Danilo Petrucci in particular, where you know there's no way that he could have not been affected in terms of confidence by what he was being asked to do with that bike. So that could also explain some of his, some of his results. Or, I mean... In the Zoom calls, Neil, towards the end of the season, his his demeanor was broken. Yeah, not even not even a guy who knew he had lost his job, but more a case of get me out of here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I would normally be sat like four or five rows behind him, and watching him walk into the media center was painful in itself. Never mind listening to how Don Beatty was. Um, but I quite liked I quite liked his comments on the Sunday after Portimao. He basically thanked Delinia for sacking him so early because it means he's <laughs> on a KTM next year. So he's retained his sense of humor at least. Yeah, he looked. Uh, I mean, that move so early in the season looked. You think, well, you know, you're going to the satellite KTM team. You know, how's that move going to be for you? But he must have been. I mean, Miguel Oliveira won on that bike in the last race of the year, so he must have been rubbing his hands. I mean, that was a ride that Andrea Davizio turned down. So. You know, I think uh, to be on a KTM now is, uh, which we'll talk about later on. Um, but you know, that's that's not looking too bad. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what do you think about the lineup that Ducati have for next year? Yeah, I think it's it's going to be interesting. Um, yeah, there's a, a big question marks. I would say um, Banyaya over his consistency, uh, Miller as well. I mean, I think I agree with you. I think it was probably Miller's best season ever, but. I remember thinking after Aragon, his season's just sort of gone away from him, basically. Okay. Um, but he then sort of found that form again at Valencia and, um, and Portimao. It does seem like when he's at tracks that he's uh, he's very good at. He's one of the fastest guys, but then it's those days where you see him up at the front at the start of the race and he starts to fade where um, it's... It, it, makes you wonder whether he has a championship uh, charge in him, basically. Um, but, you know, he has, I would say he's definitely been getting better. Um, and the last two years have been his, his strongest in MotoGP, for he's sure. He's going to win races next year. I mean, you know, unless Marquez returns on another planet, 
then you know Miller's is going to be in contention. And after last year, where we I think collectively thought it was an underwhelming season for him, um, we thought you know it's time you produce some results on that motorcycle because um, let's not forget it was on factory material as well last season. Um, uh, it was, I think, you know, he needed this year. Yeah, exactly. And it is going to be interesting next year to see the likes of uh, Jorge Martin uh, and Bastianini on Ducatis, because guys that are more about flow and precision rather than aggression and late-breaking antics. I hope Pramac's spares package is uh, suitably big for, for the season ahead. I think they could be picking up a few bits of Ducati around the, the gravel <laughs> traps um, throughout the races. If for me, uh, maybe Bastianini has more potential there. I think Martin, okay, if somebody slides a, a MotoGP contract across the table at you, you don't, you, you know, it's a strong man to turn it down. But for me, he's a, a rider that could maybe have done another year in Moto2, um, like Brad Binder, and maybe just to get a little bit more racecraft. Um, you know, I wouldn't identify him as a MotoGP-ready package yet. No. So, but Bastianini has the... The nationality, maybe a little bit more of that mature character to take through, and of course that that championship. Yeah, yeah, no, I'd agree with that for sure. Um, Martin, sensational talent, no doubt, but uh, yeah, I think another year model two could have maybe done him uh, done him the world of good. Um, okay, well, I think that brings our uh, unless you have anything else we'd like to, you'd like to talk about regarding uh, Ducati. Uh, I think that brings our discussion uh, for this show to an end, um, in which we cover. Uh, two of the leading lights in this year's MotoGP Championship. It's uh, roundabout now that I would like to thank, uh, well, I'd like to thank you, Adam, for being on the show. Uh, I'd like to thank you, dear listener, for uh, listening as always and uh, to remind you of uh, the various uh, social media channels uh, that you should follow us on, uh, including Twitter, that's at paddockpasspod, facebook.com forward slash paddockpasspodcast. Yes, and also leave us a review on those uh, Apple podcast listening uh, apps if you could because that greatly helps other listeners find our show so we're going to be coming back to you with two more of these uh, constructors reviews our next show is going to be on yamaha and honda and uh, you better not miss it dear listeners so until then speak soon there must be an outtake clip in somewhere oh yeah jb or, or brian whoever's listening to this please compile an outtakes yeah yeah of Adam slagging off Cormac. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, Cormac.